You're listening to the M2 podcast featuring one of our speakers from the M2 Summit, 3rd of November 2020, brought to you by Yukiwi Natural Oral Care, Woodford Reserve, and Lease Plan. While some people's idea of a commute might be changing their Zoom background these days, we still actually need to physically go places, and how, how we move about is often the things that shapes our cities and our lives. So to talk about the future of that and the future of transport and everything that flows on from that, please welcome to the stage Uber's Lewis Mills. No, I think I gave you a one that was off. Oh, that's right. Just, uh, I'll give you another one. How's that? Let's try again. Oh, great. All right. Cool. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Andre. Thanks, M2 and uh, Jennifer and the team for having me. Really nice to be here in person rather than, uh, you know, doing Zooms and things like that. Uh, pretty big topic for me today. It's, uh, it's that, the future of mobility. Um, and I think that Aucklanders know more than anyone that the transport system we have is under a lot of pressure. You know, when you're out there on Key Street and there's 1.6 million Aucklanders and about uh, half the world's traffic cone supply, it feels like, approximately. Um, I was thinking before, actually, it's a good idea for uh, disruption, the traffic cone industry, because someone is making some serious money out of that. Um, but when you're out there and amongst that, the implications in terms of productivity the impact on the climate and just your own well-being are really quite major and they're quite negative. So we need to think of a new way of doing things. We need to do some innovation. We need to mix it up or we're going to end up in a very bad place. And what I thought I'd do is rather than um, dig into the statistics on vehicle usage and congestion and all the rest of it, I'll just start by playing a short video, which um, is fun but um, has a serious message about where we're headed if we're not careful. Oh, let's try again. Oh, maybe not. Well, um, we can just look at that still for a moment, and I could sort of... Um, it's, uh, I could probably describe what happens in the video, but it does lose some impact. So um, let's leave it, and we'll just, we'll, just, uh, we'll just move along to this. But um, you can see that for... Uh, great, there we go, okay, okay, let's have another go, here we go, so share of travel in Auckland is at 90% private vehicles, um, that's uh, obviously very, very high and it shows that Aucklanders really, really love their cars and we've got a really long way to go to break that and change that and it's hard, it's hard to match the convenience of, of having your private car. But the problem is that we're just not going to be able to sustain this if we want our cities to be livable and functional. So there's a long way to go. And the question is, well, how do we get there? How do we make the kinds of changes that are necessary? How do we create alternatives that are actually usable for people and realistic? And the way Uber thinks about that is in these four categories, shared, active, integrated and complementary, and electric. Shared is obviously the origin of Uber as a rideshare business. It's sort of at the heart of all Uber's activities. And we think it will continue to be part of the transport story. 
um, for, for the foreseeable future. Obviously, everybody's familiar with your standard Uber, where you push a button, get a ride, uh, turns up in four or five minutes, hopefully. Um, but we're expanding beyond that. In Auckland, we're trialling something called Uber Commute, which allows commuters to book a ride the night before, essentially, um, and then travel into town or home from town in the afternoon run um, with another commuter and have that cost defrayed um, via basically a petrol reimbursement. So it's a facilitated cost-sharing um, uh, arrangement under the carpool regulations. And what that means is that people who don't necessarily want to be Uber drivers and aren't looking to earn money, but are happy to um, have another person in the car with them, happy to do their bit uh, for reducing the number of cars on the road, are able to do that and also have their petrol costs defrayed. Uh, that's Uber Commute. Uh, the other part of it is uh, Uber Pool, which if you've been in Australia and the US, not in the last few months, obviously, but perhaps at some previous time, maybe again in the future, you may be familiar with. There's an animation of it on the screen there. It's actually a slightly different thing called Express Pool. And how that works is that the app matches more than one person headed in the same direction. And that makes things a bit more efficient, reduces the number of cars on the road rather than a one-for-one -one transaction. You can see there on the animation the app's actually directing them to walk a couple of, uh, couple of streets over to, to uh, catch the Uber and get everyone there at the same time. So that's your, um, that's your pooling and that's the shared uh, category. The next is active, and when we talk about active, we mean e-scooters, e-bikes, and new devices. You know, um, a few years ago, nobody was talking about e-scooters, quite eccentric to own an e-scooter, maybe it still is a little bit, but they're at least um, uh, you know, pretty ubiquitous in New Zealand towns and cities at the moment. And given where we've come from on that front, we just don't really know what's coming down the pipe in terms of uh, new devices as well, new personal mobility devices. So we started with e-scooters and e-bikes, and you know, you'll know that that's, you know, there's a lot of adjustment that has to go on to accommodate that. It's new vehicles um, on the street, um, and it takes a while for user behaviour to get to a point where that all works with everybody and fits in. So there's a little bit to be done there, and that can be supported through technology. For example, there are uh, anti-tipping alarm technology available where if one of the vehicles is knocked over and it's you know, being a nuisance, it's blocking a path, it's in the way, uh, the operational staff can be notified about that. There's obviously the geofencing and speed limiting technology, which you'll be familiar with if you've used an e-bike or e-scooter, which manages where people can go and at what speed. And there's also technology for the um, development of autonomous scooters, which actually return themselves to the warehouse in the evening, which is um, a little bit scary, but also uh, quite good from a, a operational point of view, um, as well as in terms of public amenity of getting the vehicles uh, turned over again. Uh, so that's on the technology side. Obviously, you need infrastructure to support this and actually make it work. So that means shared paths, and um, don't tell Mike Hosking this, but it also means bike lanes. Um, you do need that, uh, and that's the only way to get the uptake required to really make a dent in those statistics we, we looked at right at the start. So e-scooters, e-bikes, new devices, micromobility, we think it's here to stay and will continue to be part of the uh, future of mobility picture. The next category is integrated and complementary. So public transport's going to still be the backbone of how people get around in our major cities. Um, the buses, trains, ferries, whatever it will be in the future. But we think that that can be augmented and complemented by technology like Ubers. So what that means 
is that you're able to connect up different modes on the same trip and get yourself um, from A to B using the combination that works for you um, based on your particular needs at the time. So the end game is you open the app, it, it shows you, you know, a suite of different options and you choose the one that fits with the PT, the public transport leg as part of it. So I'll just show you a little animation of what that actually looks like or will look like. This isn't something that's fully on stream at the moment. But you can see there you open the app, you're looking to get across town and the app's made a couple of different suggestions about how you might do it with different prices. And the one that's selected there is the e-bike for the first bit, the train for the second bit, uh, or it's a bus rather, and then an express pool right at the end to make up that last bit of the uh, make up that last bit of the journey. And really importantly, it's a single ticket. So it's a seamless experience changing between modes. So you're not faffing around with the AT hop card and the credit card and you know all that kind of stuff. So that's the end game to get to that. Another part of it just on the slide there is first last mile solutions. So that's you know to some extent what a connected journey is, but there are also separate use cases for that too. So a good example is over in Sydney, if you know Manly, at the Mary, uh, Manly ferry terminal, um, there's a small geofence around the ferry terminal and then a larger geofence around the broader area. If you take an Uber from the larger geofence into the smaller one, the ride is subsidised and we're doing that together with Transport for New South Wales to understand what impact that has on patronage. Might sound familiar to you because of course um, across the water in uh, Devonport, Auckland Transport's actually running something similar themselves. Um, where they're subsidising rides to the ferry terminal on the other side. So be interesting to see what the outcome is there and to what extent that does actually drive patronage. So that's public transport. Continue to be part of the picture, uh, complement and augmented, as I say, by some of the technology that's out there. The last one, and, um, you know, it really pervades everything I've been saying, but it's, it's, it's the most important, is electric. Um, the future's going to require electrification. Transport's a major emitter. It's usually the number one or two emitter in most markets in the world. And uh, for Uber, uh, we've committed to get to zero emissions, so true zero tailpipe emissions, in the US and Europe for 2030, uh, with the other markets to follow on, and in London for 2025. So it's pretty ambitious, um, but it really has to be done. We Industry needs to get on and do it if we're to help um, get towards Paris. So um, on the electric front, the big question, I guess, for policymakers and for industry is, well, okay, um, electric cars are really expensive. The infrastructure also isn't quite there, uh, there at the moment. Um, how can we accelerate that transition in the way that, that allows people to still get around in, in the manner they've become accustomed to? And there are sort of two parts to that. One is um, incentivising riders and drivers, uh, incentivising riders, rather, and then on the other side you have the actual the EV assets and the drivers. So if you start on the rider side, the first line of defence, if you like, for making that transition is getting lower carbon electric options available on the app. It's just what I've been talking about, essentially, connected journeys, and having that humming so it's actually a reasonable option for someone to choose, um, especially if you have those connected options where you can choose the right mode for the right trip. That's kind of the first line of defence. I think the second is uh, electric-specific modes. So Uber Green is something that's um, being used in some parts of the world. Essentially, that's an EV. You pay an extra dollar for it. Um, the consumer chooses the EV and pays the dollar for it. And that dollar goes towards driver incentives, which I'll talk about in a moment. And the third bit's transparency. So 
Obviously, corporates and operators will be talking more and more about their electrification issue, um, efforts, um, about their carbon intensity, and as well as that, we hope that there'll come a time where you'll open the app, and when you make those choices between the modes, and you're thinking, well, do I take the e-bike and the train or the private Uber and the Uber commute or whatever, um, there'll be some richer data for you available to you about that, about the electrification, about the carbon intensity. Um, so that's about putting consumers in a position to, to make that positive choice. So that's the, the rider um, side. On the driver side, um, there's a few things you can do. There's a zero emissions incentive, and we expect that over time more and more um, operators will do this. It's a dollar per trip if you've got an EV for drivers. Uber Green, which I talked about before, has something similar. So if you're operating an EV, you get essentially a subsidy uh, towards that. And the last thing is partnerships um, with vehicle companies and leasing agencies so that you can actually um, basically get a discounted vehicle. So in the US, it's a Chevrolet Bolt. Um, in Europe, some other models. And in the UK, uh, Hyundai Kona, Nissan Leaf, and a couple of others. Incidentally, in the UK, the 2025 zero emissions target is going to be met by way of the application of a 15 uh, uh, pence, rather, 15 pence fee per trip for every trip that is bounded by the M25. Drivers accumulate that and they can then use it to um, put towards the cost of an EV through one of the, one of the partnerships that I've, uh, that I've mentioned. Um, so that's you know, part, of, part of how you get there. That's what industry can do. Obviously, you need government to step in and think about how we, how we manage that, how we incentivize that shift. Policy, typically and traditionally as well, will just um, make it cheaper for consumers to buy EVs, and that's, that's good. That has some impact. Um, the problem is that private vehicles usually sit at 4 or 5% utilization. So if you're trying to reduce the heavy usage of the internal combustion engine, you need to have a bit of a think about subsidizing electric kilometers rather than about subsidizing the particular mode, especially the privately owned mode. So lots for government to think about there um, and lots for them to, to, to sort out in the years ahead. So of course, being Uber, when we talk about electrification, we mean vehicles on the ground, but um, won't surprise you to know we also mean uh, vehicles in the air as well. We believe that as cities get more intensified and go upwards, transport will have to go upwards as well. And that's why we think that vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, small electric cars, flying Ubers essentially, will be part of the picture too. Um, that's not a future that's here yet, um, but it is an exciting one, it's an aspirational one. And what I'm hoping to do, we'll see if it works this time, is leave you with just a little clip of what that aerial future could look like. So let's just have a go. Well, again, I can describe what happens, but it really does lose the impact. So um, uh, there you go. Um, I should just say, look, um, thanks very much for your attention. And I hope that... Um oh, there we go.
what an idyllic scene. So, closer than you think. Um, thanks very much for um, being here today. Thanks, M2, for having me. And uh, I hope we'll see you on a trip with us soon, whether that's an e-bike, an e-commute, an Uber, or something a bit more futuristic like that. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Stick around for a little bit. Sure. Sure. Um, that was probably better watching that than hearing you describe I, it. So I know, I know. I've, yeah, being from Uber, you always, um, there's a lot of expectations about videos sort of running smoothly. So I, so this is I have part previously of had to describe it, which is uh, not <laughs> as good, I can tell you. It's yeah. part of the magic of a live event. Yeah. Um, now, that paints a future where you've got this intensification of cities, and that's, yeah. you know, that's a very valid future. But do you think the stuff that happens in between, like we are talking now about more of a regional spread potentially on the back of what's happened this year, you know, people being able to work from home, does that right, change right. some of that medium-term stuff? Uh, I mean, it probably does in the short term. So in terms of at a you know, really technical operational level, you can imagine that in the last few months, it's been pretty difficult to get people to share rides, which is, of course, the whole basis of Uber's whole business. So it's a pretty challenging time in the short term. My sense is, and this is just my own reckons, um, you know, I think that you will just continue to see intensification, hmm. um, especially in places like Auckland, which are heavily, you know, where everyone's got a massive villa yeah. and all the rest of it, it's just not going to work. So my sense is you will see continued intensification, and you know, as part of that, we're going to have to get a lot tighter. Um, and minutes and seconds count in terms of travel when you're in that sort of world. So I think we'll still get there, but certainly it's been delayed by the, the impacts of COVID here. Brilliant. Now, even, even beyond Uber, but just generally speaking, yeah. are you optimistic for New Zealand's future? Uh, I mean, <laughs> try to be. Um, I think you know, coming to events like this is always good because you can sort of hear from people who are Enthusiastic, enthusiastic and aspirational and, you know, have ideas and are kind of buzzing. And, you know, I just agree with what's been said earlier about the tall poppies thing. Working for a US company, mm. when I arrived from having been a private practice lawyer in New Zealand, having been in the public sector as well, it's really like a splash of cold water in the face because <laughs> everybody's so pumped up about everything. Um, and, you know, being around that and that drive and that kind of ambition, um, it's a little bit cultural, but I don't see why with the resources we have and the people we have, we can't capture a bit of that here and still be distinctly mm. distinctly Kiwi. So, you know, that's been my experience working for a US business. I hope we could have a bit more of that here. Yeah, yeah. is it a balance though? Like we don't want to become totally like that. Do we, do, do we leverage some of the humility uh, yeah. that we have? Uh, yeah, we don't want to start talking about strollers and uh, doing all that kind of uh, stuff. But yeah, I think that it, it's a balance to be struck, but I think, I think we're probably a bit too far the other way. Mm. Um, and I think just a little bit more of that kind of attitude um, could really help. But yeah, how we are makes us special. Obviously, there's a lot about the US being careful here that we maybe wouldn't want to replicate in New Zealand. Um, so we have to take care. But I do think that it's the, the kind of drive and ambition and you, you sort of see it at, at events like this. Mm. Um, and how do you amplify that? I don't really know. But um, it would be great if something like this, if the flying vehicles or whatever it is, um, was able to be built in New Zealand. In fact, there is an example of that with, uh, with WISC. So, yeah, yeah, it's cool. Thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Thank you. You're listening to the M2 podcast featuring one of our speakers from the M2 Summit, 3rd of November, 2020, brought to you by Ukiwi Natural Oral Care, Woodford Reserve and Lease Plan.